So I'll put our Bibles to uh, chapter 1, and I like to do this at the beginning of uh, every study that we have in Revelation. Two verses, verse 3, Blessed is he who reads and those who hear the words of this prophecy and keep those things which are written, for the time is near. That's verse 3. Then the key to the book of Revelation, verse 19, write the things which you have seen. That would be chapter 1. Write the things which are, present tense to John, the time of the church age, chapters 2 and 3. And then write the things which will take place after this, after the church age. We're here tonight, first day of summer, beautiful day, beautiful temperature. And um, uh, yet we are on the verge of uh, the Lord taking the church home. And when that happens, then the things that will take place after this start with chapter 4 and 5. Really, chapter 6 is the beginning of, uh, of the three sets of judgments. We have the, the seven seal judgments. We have the seven trumpet judgments. And um, at chapter 8, verse 1, uh, they opened the seventh seal. Uh, the seventh seal will not be open until we get to the end of our Bible study tonight. So in between, we've had uh, um, these chapters. Uh, chapter 9 takes us all the way up to the sixth trumpet, but then we have a break. And one thing I want to point out as we go through Revelation, as we go through the different judgments, there's, there's going to be breaks. And the case tonight, both chapter 10 and the first 14 verses of chapter 11 our information that's given to us. And then beginning with verse 15, we have the opening of the seventh trumpet. And the seventh trumpet is going to contain the last bold judgments. And that is basically chapter 16. And uh, so with that being said, let's go to chapter 10. Really, the whole chapter, as we get into this, we're introduced to a mighty angel that comes down from heaven clothed with a cloud. Rainbow was on his head, his face was like the sun and his feet like pillars of fire. Um, what we have here is not the Lord, and we know it's not the Lord because in chapter 1, when John uh, saw Jesus, uh, he fell down and worshipped, and here he does not, but we're told um, that um, in verse 2 that he has in his hand a little book open. So just picture in your mind's eye this angel, this great angel coming down. He has a little book and um, it's in his hand and he set his right foot on the sea and his left foot on, this, on, on the land. And he cried with a loud voice as when a lion roars and when he cried out, seven thunders uttered their voices. So this had to be quite a scene. Angel comes down, one, one foot on land, one foot on water, has a book in his hand. No sooner hits the ground, and we have these, these uh, voices that sound like thunder happening all at the same time. 
And verse 4, and when the seven thunders uttered their voices, I was about to write, but I heard a voice from heaven saying to me, seal up the things which the seven thunders uttered and do not write them. Does that not drive you crazy or what? I mean, why tell us? Why even, why put these verses in here um, when in, in Revelation, uh, the whole book of Revelation is about revealing. It means to unfold, to unreveal. You go to the last, uh, um, go to the last chapter, 22, on verse 10. He said to me, do not seal the words of the prophecy of this book for the time is at hand. And yet we clearly have these seven thunders uttering something. And um, the Lord definitely wants us to know about it. I imagine it has something to do with the future and, and why he, he has chosen to not conceal it or reveal it here. When we read Daniel, which we'll be doing on Sunday morning, when we get to chapter 12, Daniel is told by the Lord to shut up and seal the book. Daniel wanted to know all the visions and he wanted to understand. The Lord says, no, um, uh, it's not going to happen until the time of the end. But here we are, and now we're having the privilege of watching these things unfold as the stage is set um, for uh, the rapture of the church, number one, and uh, the coming of the great tribulation uh, is where we are right now. So, big mystery with um, this interruption with these seven thunders that the Lord's going to tell us what that's all about. Um, in verse 5, it says, And the angel whom I was standing on the sea and on the land lifted up his hand to heaven, and he swore by him who lives forever and ever, who created heaven and the things that are in it, the earth and all the things that are in it, and the sea and all the things that are in it, that there should be delay no longer. Now, we're told in Hebrews not to forsake the assembling of ourselves together like we're doing here tonight. And we're to do it more and more and more and more as you see the day approaching. So the idea there is as things get closer, there's more of, a, of an awareness that the Lord is coming. And um, that the Lord is patient, long-suffering, not willing that any should perish. And this, this is just my personal two shekels worth right here. I really believe that, that the Lord will wait till the very last second. If he, if he can snatch one person from going through the tribulation, he will. But if he decides, like in Genesis 6-3, no more, that's it. And he, he draws that line, he says, that's it for right now. And uh, I believe that line is coming, and the Lord's going to say, no more delay. Right here says there will be de- delay no longer. And um, you'll either be raptured, or you're going to enter into the Great Tribulation. That's what's clearly being taught here. But in the days of the sounding of the seventh angel, when he is about to sound, the mystery of God would be finished as he declared to his servants the prophets. The mysteries of God. Um, There are several. Uh, We really don't know. 
So it's sort of foolish to, to speculate. Someday we'll understand the delay no longer. But the mysteries of God, um, mystery to those who are in the world, we go about talking about current events, the rapture, tribulation, second coming of the Lord. And, you know, the world is caught up in the things that the world is caught up into. The lust of the eyes, the lust of the flesh, and the pride of life. They could care less of your, your concerns for them. So that's a mystery. Second uh, Thessalonians 2 said there's the mystery of iniquity. And um, Paul declares that he's going to reveal a mystery in 1 Corinthians 15 about the rapture. Um, Hebrews talks about um, the mystery of Israel's blindness. He says this has happened to them, this blindness in part, and it's a mystery. Why would God not allow his own people to um, um, miss him when he came the first time? Well, looking back over the last 2,000 years, to me it's obvious. He had a bigger plan in his wisdom to save Gentiles. And you'd have to be Jewish to really be able to wrap your head around this one because that was inconceivable. Gentiles don't get saved. They're dogs, period. So when Cornelius, the first Gentile that got saved, all the Jews that were there, and he had to have a one-on-one with Peter before he would even witness to Cornelius. He was hungry, and his blanket came out of heaven three times, and it had all this unkosher food. I mean, there were ham sandwiches galore on this on his blanket. And uh, the Lord says, rise up, Peter, kill it, eat. And he says, no. <laughs> How can you say, that's the ultimate oxymoron. No, Lord. <laughs> he says, I've, since my youth, I've never eaten anything or touched anything that's unclean. Um, to hang out with a Gentile or a Gentile could be saved. That is just not possible. So he got the lesson, and he's, he told Peter, he says, what I've cleansed, don't you dare call common or unclean. Knock at the door. There's this guy named Cornelius. That angel appeared to him, and he said, come to your house and come, and he's going to tell us all how to get saved. So, ding, the light goes on for Peter. He goes, oh, I get it. You want me to go to a Gentile's house? Unclean. In the meantime, Cornelius had gathered all of his the neighborhood around and, you know, in the middle of Peter's Bible study, the Holy Spirit interrupts him when he gets to the part that says Jesus came to save sinners. Jesus came to save sinners. And Cornelius is saying, Jesus came to save sinners. I'm a sinner. And in his heart, he accepted the Lord right then and there. And the reason I know that is the Holy Spirit fell on all of them and filled them and they were all saved. And all the Jews that were there going, what's this, oy vey? <laughs> Gentiles are getting saved? The first big argument in the church is what do we do with these Gentiles? The first big powwow they had in Acts chapter 15 was to, what sort of rules and regulations do we put on somebody that's not Jewish who's now a believer in our Messiah? Remember, the early church was Jewish, not Gentile. Cornelius was the very first one. So this was an issue that they had to, they had to deal with. So it's one of the mysteries of God that in his wisdom, he took 
Israel blinded them for a season so that the gospel could go for a period of time to you and I, who are mostly Gentiles. There might be some Jewish people here. Um, And as a result, in 2,000 years, we actually have a higher ranking place than Jews during the millennium because we're the bride of Christ. Now, we're going to read about John the Baptist tonight, and he just says, I'm just a friend of the groom. He doesn't put himself, and this is the greatest man that ever lived. I'll make a point of that as we get into our study. The greatest man who ever lived says he's, he's beneath any bride of the Lord Jesus Christ. He doesn't put himself in the same category. And I'm getting ahead of myself here. So anyway, it's one of the mysteries. These are Bible studies within themselves. And um, so there would be de- delay no longer. And um, a voice came to him in the days of the sounding of the seventh angel when he was about to sound the mystery of God would be finished and he declared his servant to the prophets. Then the voice which I heard from heaven spoke to me again and said, go take the little book which is out of the hand of the angel who stands on the sea and on the earth. And I went to the angel and I said to him, give me the little book. And he said to me, take it and eat it, and it will make your stomach bitter, but it will be sweet as honey in your mouth. Then I took the little book out of the angel's hand, and I ate it, and it was sweet as honey in my mouth. But when I had eaten it, my stomach became bitter. And then he said to me, you must prophesy again about many peoples, nations, tongues, and nations. All right, big question, what is the little book. Um, the little book or the scroll is the seven sealed book which we have before us. One reason is simple because it's the only book that has been before us and it is not identified in any other way other than it's called the little book. A different word is used here for this book. Instead of the Greek word Bibelon, which is used for the seven-sealed book. Eating the little book means to receive the word of God by faith. And I'm going to give you some scriptures from the Old Testament. This one's from Jeremiah 15, verse 16. The words we found, and I did eat them, and thy word unto me, the joy and rejoicing of my heart. For I am called by thy name, O Lord God of hosts, and Jeremiah here likens this eating, the, the word of God, as eating it. Now, Ezekiel does the same thing. Moreover, he said to me, Son of man, eat that which thou hast found. Eat this roll. And after you've eaten it, I want you to go to speak to the house of Israel. So Ezekiel said, so I opened my mouth. And he caused me to eat the roll or scroll, and he said to me, Son of man, cause thy belly to eat and fill thy bowels with this roll that I give thee. And Ezekiel says that I did eat it, and it was in my mouth as honey for sweetness. That's Ezekiel 3, 1 to 3. The roll here is not a bread roll, but the scroll of that day. Ezekiel said that he ate it, and it was like cake. 
and that it was what the word of God is to the believer. In Proverbs 16.24, we're told, Pleasant words are as a honeycomb, sweet to the soul, health to the bones. Psalm 119 says, um, the psalm which uh, glorifies the word of God, How sweet are thy words unto thy taste, yea, sweeter than honey to my mouth. To my mouth. The reason uh, we have the clue of what it is here is because of verse 11, if you look at it. After he eats it, just like Ezekiel says, now go tell the people what you've just eaten. Jesus said, man can't live by bread alone, but by every word that proceeds from the mouth of God. And so part of you know, just being a healthy Christian is eating. And we all know it. If you, you eat junk food all the time, you're going to... That's what's going <laughs> to, you're going to turn to a junkie, I suppose. Uh, but here, you know, if you have a steady diet of the, of the pure sweetness of the word of God, it, it's a two-edged sword. It has, it has two effects. The book here is 22 chapters long. It's the book of Revelation. What, what did I read in verse 3, the very first verse this morning? Blessed is he who reads the words of this book. It's a blessing. What do we read in chapters 2 and 3? Oh, unbelievable, beautiful promises given to the church. Bring it on. Sweet. And when we think about what the Lord has prepared for you and me, a place, um, it's sweet. But then you get into a little bit deeper into the book. And you start to realize that this is probably one of the bitterest portions of the Bible. Actually, it is. Jesus said so. Jesus says there's coming a time that has never been like the Great Tribulation, nor before, nor after, and unless I directly intervene in world history, nobody's going to live. Man will destroy himself. Does that sound bitter to you? So what do we have here? John, take the book. Eat it. It's going to start out pretty good, and it's going to be a blessing to those who hear it. And uh, the promises that are given to the church, pretty sweet stuff. But then we start to read, we don't even get through the sealed judgments, and one quarter of the earth's population is destroyed. By the time we get into the sealed judgments, another third of the earth's population is destroyed. We're not even into the bold judgments and half the population of the earth has been destroyed. One third of all fresh water, one third of the oceans, one third of green grass, and the list goes on. So when it says it'll be sweet in your mouth at the beginning, but it's going to be bitter as you digest it. The problem with the church today is topical Bible studies. I call them sermonettes for Christianettes, a mile wide and an inch deep, shallow. There's no meat to it. And um, unless you get into the whole counsel of God, tying in the book of Daniel with Revelation, you know how many people literally take a serious look at this book and digest it? So when I use the word digest in that Meaning, it takes on a whole deeper meaning. We're not talking about the milk of the word here. We're talking meaty stuff. But meat, um, you've got to be able to digest it. 
A lot of people, to be quite honest with you, I've heard people say, oh, Dwight, you got to, all you talk about is that doom and gloom stuff. And I say, no. <laughs> I say, you can go online anytime you want to. We archive every Bible study we've ever done here. It's our fourth time through the Bible. And um, it's just one chapter after the next chapter and one verse after the next verse. Whatever we're dealing with here, that's the subject that we deal with. We're not doom and gloom. We're just taking this book seriously. And as, as a result, um, the meaning of, uh, of taking it in and digesting it but then taking it a step farther, and um, the Lord says, when you receive the Holy Spirit, it will be like living waters that will flow out of you. It's a natural occurrence for a born-again believer to simply want to tell other people about Jesus. Good place for an amen. Not that you're planning on it. It's just that you can't help it. Remember when Jeremiah, or which prophet says, I've had it. I quit. I'm never going to talk about God's word again. But then he said, but your word burned in me, and I couldn't contain myself. I had to tell somebody. And so as as we look at this, and I think about it, um, I I got really excited today. I was wondering about our trip to Israel and if we've had the amount of people. Um, We got 40 people going to Israel, and um, it's still not too late to, to get on board. So, but when we, when we go to Israel, one of the greatest learning object lessons that I like to use is the Dead Sea as a picture of the Christian life. Because we, we begin way up uh, in Caesarea Philippi. That's the very beginning of the Jordan River. And it's fast and it's flowing and it's beautiful and there's trout in it. That flows into the Sea of Galilee, where we always stop and have... Saint, they call it St. Peter's fish. We have a special fish that comes from the Sea of Galilee, teeming with life. And then the Jordan goes all the way down. And most of it doesn't make it anymore because of irrigation and everything. And it flows into the Dead Sea. There is nothing that lives in the Dead Sea. But without exception, the bus driver always gets us every year. We'll be driving by and goes, a porpoise. And everybody looks. Why would anybody look for a porpoise in the Dead Sea? But he gets us with, with that one. Why is there no life in the Dead Sea? Simple. There's life that flows in, but it doesn't flow out. And it's important that the, the Bible says, make known the deeds of the Lord amongst the people. What has the Lord done in your life? Uh, I have this friend who uh, lives over by Stevens Point, and every time he talks to me, he says, so what's the Lord showing you? First words out of his mouth. So what's the Lord, what's the Lord showing you? I, I know what he's going to say before he says it, so I've got to be prepared because I know it's coming. Well, this whole idea here is he's taken in something that was sweet. Who likes to talk about a half, half the world's population dying? Oh, you're negative. You, you know, I don't want to hear stuff like that. But it's true, and it's going to happen. And we know people that are going to enter into this period of time. So if you don't have an outlet and you're saying, well, witnessing, you know, it's just not my gift. Well, 
then you witness by being the best worker at your job site. You witness by loving your neighbor as yourself. You do, you give it your best shot. And uh, learning to share with people about Jesus is it's just something that takes time. That's all I can tell you. When I finally was born again and filled with the Holy Spirit, I had the zeal, but I didn't have the knowledge. And I didn't have any tact. And I, I would turn it into an argument, especially with my father, because fathers teach sons. Sons don't teach daughters. No, I'm not a daughter. I'm a son. <laughs> I'm sure of that. And, you know, that's just dad's responsibility. And say, dad, there's more to it. So it, it ended up in an argument all the time. And the, the thing is, it's a learning process to be, to be tactful and approaching and looking for that open door. If, if you're a fisher of men, what fisherman that do you know that goes out and the first thing he does is get out a blowhorn and takes a bunch of rocks and starts throwing them all over the place and then throws it in his pool? No. You're upset because of the motorboat that just drove, drove by and they're disturbing the quiet of the calm because you want, you're there to catch fish. It's the same way with being a fisher of men. It's a learning process. And it's something that, that you wish there was a shortcut for. But no. So don't get down on yourself if you're in that stage where you got foot and mouth disease like Peter did in his early days. Always spoke when he shouldn't have. When you should have been listening, he was speaking. And um, just look for your opportunities and, and just pray, Lord, give me an open door here. Something that, uh, this is the best thing that you can get a person in a place of sharing with them if you can get them to ask you questions, if you can get the conversation around where they're asking you the question like Jesus with the woman at the well. Remember, they didn't start out too well. That was a pun. I just got that one. They didn't start out too well. It's a gift. What can I say? Before, before the day is over, what she's doing? Well, she's asking the deepest questions that are deep down inside of her heart. What did Jesus do? He asked her questions. He says, well, go get your husband. Well, I'm not married. Oh, that's right. You're not married. You've been married five times. You're living with a guy now. You're right. And whoa, you got my attention. Who are you? And then it all came bubbling out. There's a proverb that says, a wise man draws out counsel like a deep well. And we are to become all things to all people. Know who you're talking to. What do they identify with? Um, Paul in Athens quoted their poet. He says, I've been reading some of your, your, your poetry here, and you got this God over here to the, this one that's unknown. Let me tell you about him. That's called tact. They could identify with that. So I'm getting completely off the subject here, so I better get back to it. <laughs> The idea is he eats the book, and he's met now in verse 11, if I would sum it up. Um, you must prophesy again for many peoples, nations, tongues, and kings. The book is this book. Now, the people that are going to be doing most of, of the sharing from, for the first two and a half years are introduced to us now as we look at chapter 11. 
Chapter 11 begins with the temple. Let's read verse 1. Then I was given a reed like a measuring rod. And the angel stood, saying, Rise and measure the temple of God, the altar, and those who worship there. So we find that there is no temple in Israel today. The Dome of the Rock is the outstanding feature on the Temple Mount. The first wilderness temple was given to the measurements and was given to Moses on Mount Sinai. We call it the wilderness um, temple. It was portable. They put it up. They took it down. Um, Whenever the fiery clouds stopped, they stopped. Base camp. There for a period of time, then the cloud began to move. Time to break camp. And then they they did this for 40 years. That was the first one. Well, um... It was in Shiloh for 360 years, the, the tabernacle. And then David becomes king, and he's having a hard day. He says, this is not right. I live in this beautiful house of cedar, and the Ark of the Covenant of God is in this tent. Not right. And so his heart's desire is to build a temple. He can't because he too, has too much blood on his hands. But we have now the first temple being built which we call Solomon's Temple. Of course, um, just finishing Jeremiah and Ezekiel, we know that that was destroyed, destroyed by Nebuchadnezzar and the Babylonians. They were in captivity for 70 years. Um, Nehemiah, uh, serving the king, Nobody's going home to Jerusalem. Less than 50,000. When they could go home, only 50, less than 50,000 went back. And nobody is in a work ethic mood. Nobody's doing nothing. So Nehemiah and Ezra and a guy named Zerubbabel, they go down and they evaluate the situation. And they began to minister to the people the word of God. And a strange thing happened. All of a sudden it says the people had a mind to work and they built the wall in 52 days. Everything changed when they got their priorities back. And um, so this would have been rebuilt under Nehemiah and Ezra. Now King Herod, when he came along, he was not liked. He was feared. He was to be feared. But he was a great builder. And he greatly enlarged what we call Herod's temple And this was the one that would have been there when Jesus was walking the earth. And uh, one day the Lord says, destroy this temple. In three days I'll raise it up again. And I said, are you crazy? We've been working on this thing for the last 46 years. And you're going to rebuild it in three days? But of course he was talking about the body of his temple. Because they did not know Daniel... And Jesus says in Luke 19, because you did not know the time of my coming, this is what's going to happen to you. Now, Jesus predicts the destruction of this temple, and he says there won't be one stone left upon another. 38 years later in 70 AD, the Roman 10th Legion came down and completely destroyed Herod's temple and scattered the Jews, and they haven't been back in the country since the 
early 1900s, again became a nation in 1948. So there is no temple on a temple mount. Moshe Dayan, the Israeli general, the guy with the black patch on his eye, when they took the city of Jerusalem in the Six-Day War in 1967, for the first time in 2,500 years, they were there. And they couldn't believe it. They had the Temple Mount back. But fearing a greater war, he turned it back over to the, to the enemies of Israel. And um, uh, they've had control of it ever since. They had it for a while. Now, I believe that was all part of God's plan. And um, um, we'll, we'll be going on the Temple Mount uh, this November. So here, as we look at verse 1 of chapter 11, I've given you all the temples that have existed, Moses, Solomon's, uh, the rebuilt one under Nehemiah and Ezra, King Herod's temple, destroyed by the Romans in 70 A.D., but Second Thessalonians, and now verse 1 of chapter 11 says, Go measure the temple of God, the altar, and those who worship there. There will be what I call the tribulation temple. Second Thessalonians 2 says that the Antichrist goes into the temple and um, declares himself to be God. That event is called the abomination of desolation. Now, verse 2 is very interesting. It says, measure it, but leave out the court which is outside the temple and do not measure it, for it has been given to the Gentiles, and they will tread the holy city under foot for 42 months. Now, we've been making a point of how many different ways you can say three and a half years, right? Well, here's another way of saying three and a half years. But the idea is... And here's my two shekels worth again, but I'm stealing it from a professor named Dr. Asher Kaufman from the Hebrew University. And if you would ask Rabbi Richman, who's the head of the Temple Mount Institute in Jerusalem, if the Dome of the Rock has to be destroyed before they can build the temple, he'll say, absolutely. It has to be built on that spot because they believe that spot is where Abraham offered Isaac. I don't believe that. I believe that Abraham offered Isaac on a place called Golgotha, the very same spot, because that's what Abraham said. Uh, When he offered, um, where is it, numbers? Let's go back to, I get myself in trouble for doing stuff like this, but. Let's uh, go back to Genesis 22. All right. You know the story. They go to the mountains of Moriah. If you go to the Temple Mount, the elevation is 742 meters. But if you go to Golgotha, outside of the Damascus Gate, you're at the top of Mount Moriah, which is exactly 777 meters. 777 meters. So it's higher. So if you're going to offer, if you're going to make an offering, usually you go to the highest part of the mountain. So of course, you know the story, the Lord would not let this happen. But he says, take now thy son, thy only son, whom you love. What does that sound like? John 3.16. 
For God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten son. Well, he didn't go through with it, but he understood, Abraham understood that he was acting out something, so he offers this ram that got caught and killed that instead. But then he says in verse 14, And Abraham called the name of the place the Lord will provide, as it is said to this day, in the mount of the Lord it shall be provided. That's a prophecy. What will be provided? Well, another father is going to go through with it. He is going to allow his only begotten son. And it's going to be in the exact same place. Now, if you're Rabbi Richmond, you say it has to be the Temple Mount. But um, the debate of where Jesus was crucified, I'm under the persuasion that it is Golgotha. And any pictures of that area shows Golgotha, but then they they have the top of Mount Moriah just above that at 777 meters. Interesting number, don't you think? Okay, so we've made it all the way to verse 2. And um, so, Dr. Asher Kaufman, in reading in his studies, is fully persuaded that if you would look through um, the eastern gate called the Golden Gate, the one that Jesus would have went in on Palm Sunday. If you went directly forward from there, you would run directly to the door of the temple. In other words, if you're on the Mount of Olives and you look through the, the eastern gate, straight ahead would be the temple. Well, when we do our Bible study in the Garden of Gethsemane, um, the eastern gate that's sealed up, if I'm, if I'm giving the study here, it would be over my right shoulder. But uh, if you would look, if you would go straight ahead, I actually paced this up one time when I was there by myself. I paced how many paces it was from the eastern gate. I walked around, then I went this way, and then I went in and I counted my steps. And where the eastern gate is, is when you look straight ahead, there's no temple there. And the Dome of the Rock um, would be to the left. I don't know if you're following this or not. So if you're on a, uh, everybody knows what the Dome of the Rock is on a temple site. So if you're looking into the eastern gate, the Dome of the Rock is over here. It's not straight ahead. So when I read this verse here, what Dr. Dr. Asher Kaufman claims and his hypothesis is when you get to the scripture here, measure the temple, but don't measure what's outside the temple in the court. And because it's been given to the Gentiles, I believe in this peace treaty, um, you know, everybody is for everybody getting along and give everybody, make everybody try to be happy, right? So Christianity is, is a headquarters in Jerusalem of Islam, Christianity, and Judaism. It's that the uniqueness of the city of Jerusalem. But even more unique to that is the center of Jerusalem is the Temple Mount. Now, where we have our Bible study, you heard me, you're not allowed to give a Bible study or have a Bible on the Temple Mount. Isn't it a good thing you can carry the Word of God around you through wherever you go? <laughs> So it doesn't stop us from going to a, a little cupola. It's called the Dome of the Spirits. And 
when we walk the rabbinical tunnel, there's a, there's a place that, that's all boarded up, bricked up, because they believe right underneath there, as they tunneled, they discovered the Holy of Holies. And that's a whole other story that would be a whole other Bible study that we'll that uh, I'll have to tell some other time. But my point is this. Where the Dome of the Spirits is, is where I believe the original temple was. And if you stand by the Dome of the Spirits and you look towards the Mount of Olives, guess what you're looking right at? The eastern gate that's sealed up. And they have all these rocks. And I don't know if they did. somebody did this on purpose, but I noticed it when I was pacing it off that there are flat stones about that thick, about that wide, by that wide, and they, that's the surface of the Temple Mount. And they're just scattered, except in one place, the place from the eastern gate to within 20 feet of the Dome of the Spirits. And I thought, oh, that's interesting. So, verse 2, the reason I believe what will happen here is that there will be some sort of a partition. Um to keep the dome of the rock. I don't think it has to be destroyed. Um, Even though Muslims don't worship there, they worship in the Aliask Mosque. And when they pray, they pray towards Mecca. They don't pray towards the mountain. Now, if we're going over on on our plane, and it's, it's prayer time, you'll find the Orthodox Jews in the back of the plane, and they'll be asking, which way is, which way is, East from here. Where's Jerusalem from here? Because that's the direction that they pray in. Boy, am I getting off track or what? So it's possible that um, the temple can be rebuilt, I'm saying, without the Dome of the Rock being being destroyed. Now, whole change of thought when we get to verse 4. I'll give uh, verse three. I'll give power to my two witnesses, and they will prophesy one thousand two hundred and sixty days, clothed in sackcloth. All right. Before we go to verse four, I want you to turn to Zechariah chapter four. Uh, pick it up, verse one. Now the angel who talked with me came back and wakened me as a man who was wakened out of his sleep, and he said to me, "What do you see?" And so I said, well, "I'm looking, and there's a lampstand of solid gold with a bowl on it." And the stand had seven lamps with seven pipes to the seven lamps. All right, now just picture this in your mind. One of the daily routines in the temple was the lampstand, the golden lampstand. We already have one worth a million dollars in plain sight overlooking the Western Wall. It's already built. It's uh, in a plexiglass container. And um, in the temple... Uh, one of the daily jobs was that the fire couldn't go out. It's like JFK's torch in, in, in Washington. It's the, the light always has to keep going. So the, the job of the, the priest was to keep oil in the lamp. So here we find uh, an angel saying, well, well, what do you see? And he says, well, I see a solid gold lampstand and a bowl on top of it and seven lampstands with seven pipes to the seven lampstands. So now... We're introduced to two olive trees. What do olive trees have? They have olive oil, right? And one on the right of the bowl and the other at the left. 
So picture this in your mind's eye. Here is an unlimited source of oil that continually feeds these two lampstands and the flow is without measure. It's always happening. That's the idea. Well, it's a picture of what he's about to reveal to Zechariah. Um, so verse 4, so I answered and spoke to the angel who talked to me, saying, well, what are these, my Lord? And the angel who talked with me answered and said to me, do you not know what these are? Angels are always saying stuff like that. And I said, no, my Lord. So he answered and said, this is the word of the Lord to Zerubbabel. This is a foundational scripture for Calvary Chapel. And it's not by might, nor by power, it's by my spirit. So much for the purpose-driven life. It's not by man's power or purpose or anything, but it's by the spirit of the Lord. Who are you, O great mountain, before his rubble You You shall become a plain, and he shall bring forth the capstone with shouts of grace, grace to it. Moreover, the word of the Lord came to me, and... Um, It said, the hands of Zerubbabel had laid the foundations of the temple. His hands will also finish it. And then the Lord of hosts has sent me to you. So he wanted to know who these two lampstands were. And um, verse 10, these, these are the eyes of the Lord who scan and to and fro throughout the whole earth. Then I answered and said to them, well, what are these two olive trees, one on the right and the other on, on, the, on the left? And I further answered and said to him, what are these two olive branches that drips into the receptacles of the two golden pipes from which the golden oil drains? And then he answered and said to me, do you not know what these are? And I said, no, my Lord. He said, these are the two anointed ones who stand before the Lord of the whole earth. Back to Revelation chapter 11, verse 4. And here is the fulfillment of this prophecy. And it talks about two witnesses. Well, who are these two witnesses? Verse 4 tells us these are the two olive trees and the two lampstands before the God of the whole earth. What's being said here? Oil is always symbolic of an anointing. When David was anointed by Samuel to be king over Israel, what did he use? Oil. It was anointing for that position. And so what we have a picture of here, if we, if we do the type, we have two olive trees who have unlimited resources. In other words, unlimited powers so that they can do whatever they want, whenever they want. If anybody wants to harm them, fire proceeds from their their mouth and devours their enemies. If anybody wants to harm them, they must be killed in this manner. These have power to shut heaven so that no rain falls in the days of their prophecy. They have power over the water to turn them to blood, to strike the earth with all plagues as often as they desire. Now, when they finish their testimony, the beast that descended out of the bottomless pit will make war against them and overcome them and kill them. All right. Um, Question. They're killed. When are they killed? Let's go back to 
uh, verse 3, that tells us how long their ministry is. I will give power to my two witnesses, and they will prophesy for 1,260 days clothed in sackcloth. Question, how long is 1,260 days? Three and a half years. When, when did they start their witnessing? As soon as the Antichrist opened that, Jesus opened that first seal. So in the middle of the week, remember? So a lot of stuff is happening right in the very middle. Um, but in the meantime, they are causing havoc and causing judgments to come whenever they feel like it. Just like unlimited flow that would go into the lampstands. And so the Lord's drawing this picture for us. Um, their identity, let's go back to the last book of the Bible. Malachi, in the last couple of verses, <clears throat> this is, an, I wish I had another, or just to do just this right here, but I'll, we'll get as much in as we can. The last verse of the Old Testament, chapter 5. He says, Behold, I will send you Elijah the prophet before the coming of the great and dreadful day of the Lord. That's the period we're in right now. And he will turn the hearts of the father to the children and the hearts of the children to their fathers, lest I come and strike the earth with a curse. Who is one of the two witnesses? Elijah. No if, ands, and doubts about it. And if you have if, ands, and doubts about it, then let's turn to the book of Matthew in the New Testament. And remember when they came to John the Baptist? And they said, who are you? Are you the Messiah? No. Um, Are you Elijah? What did he say? John the Baptist said what? Nobody knows? (laughs) He said, no, I'm not Elijah. But Jesus contradicts him here. In Matthew chapter 11, we'll look at a couple places, picking it up in verse 11. He's talking about the forerunner, John the Baptist. I'll send my messenger before your face who will prepare your way before me. All right, in verse 11, Assuredly I say to you, he's speaking about John the Baptist, among those who are born of women, there has not risen one greater than John the Baptist. Will you just let that sink in? Now we know Solomon was the wisest man who ever lived. We know that Moses was the meekest man in his day. But here we're told above about all men of all time, next to the Lord himself, there's been none greater than John the Baptist. I have to say, wow to that. But then he says, but he who is least in the kingdom of heaven is greater than he. And this, this I mentioned earlier um, in, in John chapter 3, where, where um, he said he's just a friend of the bridegroom, but he's not the bride. So you're the bride, and he, he's saying that they're greater than him. Verse 12, from, for from the days of John the Baptist until now, the kingdom of heaven suffers violence, and the violence take it by force. For all the prophets and the law prophesied until John. John is the end of the Old Testament. And if you're willing to receive it, he is Elijah who is to come. Well, when they ask him straight out, are you Elijah? He says, no. But now he says to them, if you guys can handle this, Jesus is the one who's saying he is Elijah who is to come. 
Well, he's there, right there. But now he's saying there's a, an Elijah is coming, future tense. Is everybody following me here? So he's going to come, and he's saying that, um, that this is Elijah. What did John do? Well, he preached repentance. He turned hearts of the fathers back to the children. That's what he did. But the Elijah that's going to come, his job is just to be a witness. But more importantly, um, turn with me to um, uh, John 1, verse 19. Now, this is a testimony of John when the Jews sent priests and Levites from Jerusalem. Who are you? And he confessed and did not deny, I'm not the Christ. And they said, are you Elijah? And he said, I'm not. Are you the prophet? And he said, no. And then he goes on. These are scriptures I was just quoting. Well, what do you say about yourself? Well, I'm just somebody um, crying in the wilderness, make straight the way of the Lord. Uh, One more, and that is 19 to 23. Let's go to Matthew 17. Matthew 17. I'm going to forego, just tell you the first couple of verses, the Lord took Peter, James, and John up on a great mountain. And in verse 3 it says, Moses and Elijah appeared to them talking with him. And Peter gets, you know, all excited because Moses and Elijah are there. And um, Peter starts talking again without thinking. He wants to build a tabernacle for each of them, and a voice from heaven interrupts him and says, This is my beloved son in whom I'm well pleased. Listen to him, Peter. Now they're coming down the mountain after the event, and in verse 10 it says, The disciples ask him, saying, Why do the scribes say that Elijah must come first? Then Jesus answered and said unto them, Elijah truly, now notice this, is coming. That means he hasn't come yet. And will restore all things. But then in verse 12 he says, But I say to you that Elijah has come already, and they did not know him, but did to him whatever they wished. Likewise, the Son of Man is about to suffer at their hands. 13, then the disciples understood that he spoke to them of John the Baptist. And another place referring to John, it says he came in the power and the might of Elijah. And we find that um, Elisha wanted the anointing that was on Elijah. And uh, when he was taken up into heaven, so he was a guy that never saw death. What did Elisha want? I want a double portion of whatever he's got. So we're talking about the, the anointing of the spirit that was on Elijah. Now it's on John the Baptist. But clearly, the Lord is talking future tense at, at least twice about him coming again. All right, let's go back to Revelation 11. Who is this guy that said it's not going to rain in the days of his prophecy? Revelation 7.1 said that four angels stop the wind from blowing and no rain for three and a half years. There's no rain in the days of his prophecy. How long is his prophecy? Well, three and a half years until they're killed. Verse eight, 
And their dead bodies will lie in the streets of the great city, which spiritually is called Sodom and Egypt, where also our Lord was crucified. Heavy words for Jerusalem. Then those from the peoples, tribes, tongues, and nations will see their dead bodies uh, for three and a half days and do not allow their bodies to be put into graves. How is it possible? This was written in 96 AD. And it says all the nations of the world are going to see their dead bodies in the street. Do you know that this could only be fulfilled within the last hundred years? Or since we had cable and we can go on and flip the channel on and we can watch watch live on the other side of the world. This could only be fulfilled in the last days. Just like the Lord told Daniel, shut up and sealed. You're not going to get it because you're not going to understand cable TV. <laughs> and uh, But... In the end, there's going to be cable TV. And you'll say, well, yeah, the whole world can watch something happen, the Olympics or whatever, from any, any place. The whole world watches this event. And um, verse 10, and those who dwell on the earth will rejoice. It'll be like Christmas, make merry, send gifts to one another, because the two prophets tormented those who dwell on the earth. Now, after the three and a half days, the breath of life of God entered them, And they stood on their feet, and great fear fell on all who saw him. I bet there was. And they heard a loud voice from heaven saying to them, Come up here. And their enemies saw them. And in the same hour there was a great earthquake. Now just begin to think about this for a second. They've been preaching the gospel. Jesus came, died for your sins. He was buried. For how long? Three days. And on the third day, he rose again. That's been their message. They're watching two guys who've been dead for three and a half days all of a sudden come back to life. What did Jesus do after he came back to life after 40 days? Taken up into heaven. Everything that these guys have been saying has been spot on. And they're, they're acting it out. And... Um, what happened when Jesus died on the cross? It was a great earthquake. A tenth of the city fell, and the earthquake, 7,000 men were killed, and the rest were afraid and gave glory to the God of heaven. Now, the second woe is past. Behold, the third woe is coming quickly. So we have the first woe, the seventh trumpet, which contains the seven bowls. Uh, first um, the first woe was the demon locust, if you'll remember. The second woe here is the two witnesses. And now what we're having is we're going into the third woe, which is the seventh trumpet being opened. And um, let's just read it because I passed my time. Then the seventh angel sounded. And the loud voice in heaven saying, The kingdoms of this world have become the kingdoms of our Lord and of his Christ, and he shall reign forever and ever. And the twenty-four elders who sat before God on their thrones fell on their faces and worshipped God, saying, We give you thanks, O Lord God Almighty, the one who is, who was, and who is to come, because you have taken your great power and reigned, The nations were angry, and and your wrath has come. And the time of the dead that they should be judged. And that your servants should 
reward and that you should reward your servants, the prophets, and the saints. That's you. And those who fear your name, both small and great, and should destroy those who destroyed the earth. Then the temple of God was opened in heaven, and the Ark of the Covenant was seen in his temple. And there was lightning and noise and thunders and an earthquake and great hail. What a scene. We've made it through 10 and 11. These are breaks in the action. As we just read, the seventh trumpet being blown, what it is basically doing is setting the stage for the last six bowls. Everybody got it? Can't leave until you take the test, and then we let you go home. Let's stand and we'll close the word of prayer. I invite you to come out. We've got about 18 people getting baptized this Sunday. They keep changing the weather, but right now it's partly sunny and 20% chance. I'm praying for 0% chance. How about you? But show up and be an encouragement and a blessing to those who are being obedient to the Lord. If you've never been baptized as a born-again believer, you need to be. Why? Simply because Jesus said so. It's really that easy. Lord, thank you for your word tonight. As we look at 10 and 11, how you've intertwined uh, Elijah from the Old Testament to John the Baptist to being one of the two witnesses, prophesied in Zechariah, fulfilled in Revelation chapter 11. Lord, all of this is yet to happen. And uh, we pray, Lord, as, as we go out tonight on this first day of summer, that um, you'd give us the endurance to be witnesses for you. Lord, we just don't want to take it in. But allow that valve to be open. So just as the Spirit flowed through the two witnesses, so, Lord, please move and flow through us. Give us boldness. And uh, we promise to give you all the glory, Lord. In Jesus' name I pray and all God's people said, Amen.